Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are talking all about research. I'm coming off the tail end of teaching a research assignment in my composition class. It's that time of the semester. Paige, did you end, you don't, you don't end on the research component, but you have a research component towards the end, right? Yeah. So I only taught comp this semester. Wow. I feel like I just sounded so bitter when I said that. <laughs> you did it sound bitter, maybe. <laughs> okay. I just felt it. No, I, I actually really like teaching 102, which is focused on research more heavily than 101. And it's, it's fun. I like it. Yeah. I think research, when I started teaching, it seemed like a chore to have to teach, but the longer I teach, the more I really enjoy teaching my students research, because at the end of the day, this is one of the skills that are, is going to be essential to them way past the end of the course. Like, can they continue to find conversations, assess conversations, join them, all of that? And so I guess then the, maybe the big question we should start with is why do we teach research in a literature class? How do we teach it in a literature class in ways that are different um, than like research in a comp class? Mm-hmm. I know for me, I started teaching research when I asked my um, literature students one day, how many of you have had a library orientation? Because I've always done library orientations in my comp classes. Um, I mean, even just at the bare minimum that it's a day that now, okay, that lesson is all sorted. But, and as a result, I had assumed that everyone else had done it. But no, a lot of students have made it through these semesters, even if they're just transfer students, you know, who maybe skipped comp at your uh, institution. And so they were unfamiliar with the library. They didn't know what resources the library had. And it's one of those cases that if no one forces them, they're not going to go find out for themselves. Yeah, it just seemed like, okay, well, instead of looking at Wikipedia, which nothing against Wikipedia, I think it's a great starting point, but to take it to the next step, let's go see what other resources your tuition is paying for. Definitely. And so question then is, did you kind of do your own library orientation or did you have a literature library in orientation? I did not do a library orientation because I actually discovered this kind of late in the game that they hadn't done it. And so I didn't have time to schedule one. And then after that, I, I was experimenting with some with some things. Uh, what about you? Have you done a specific? Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I'd love to hear about um, it. So I realized after the first semester that I taught uh, intro to literature that like you a lot of students had never had a library orientation did not know how to use the databases didn't know about any of those kinds of resources and so that semester again I did not have time to schedule one Um, we're talking specifically about like when we were teaching as grad students at FSU and if you know anything about that those library sessions kind of get eaten up really quickly by those sections of comp classes. So um, that semester I could not, but then then prior to the next semester, I reached out to the library and said, I want to do some sort of specialized library orientation 
for my intro to lit students, right? They're doing something different than composition. Let's kind of brainstorm. And so I ended up having like two sessions that semester because when I met with the library and I said, you know, here's my syllabus, here's what we're doing. Um, the first thing is that he was interested in the podcast assignments that I had. Mm. So he came up with this phenomenal instructional class, like from the library where he talked about all the resources they had for podcasting. Um, and then also did a kind of more traditional, like how to approach research in this lit class. And so it was really great. Both of those um, sessions ended up happening multiple semesters and they made lib guides for my intro to lit to specifically with that like podcast information on there. So I think that, you know, it's sort of a, good example of if something's not happening and you think it should and you're willing to work with someone in making it happen um like especially the librarians I feel like are generally open to working around like whatever your vision is and and getting students to use those resources and so it was a really productive positive thing um for me like as an instructor yeah you got me thinking um, with the collaboration idea, because uh, first of all, you're totally right. I have yet to meet a librarian at a college or university that doesn't want to help students access their resources. And I, that's just so, so valuable. But two, your next step, I think, can be getting your students involved with that co collaboration. That um, This past semester, I had my comp students write citation guides after our library orientation. So they worked in small groups that each group was responsible for explaining like, how do you cite an academic journal, a book, a website and so on. But I think you could adapt that to be, how would you find like a guide for finding information about an author, about historical context, about other prior literary analyses, like give them a topic to start exploring or I don't know, I'm riffing right now, but I think there's yeah, a way yeah. that you can have your students make guides too for after the fact to make sure they're engaged and applying this. Yeah, I really like that idea too. Um, the citation guide, uh, will you tell us more about that? Cause it's making me think too, um, one of the kind of skills for teaching research, for doing research that we have to really focus on with our students is citations and it can feel very monotonous to them um, and pointless at times, right? It feels like a bunch of rules that maybe have changed from what they learned in high school or what they're learning in another class that is, a, you know, requires a different kind of citation. And so I'm always interested to see how people approach like teaching citations. So this happened during the pandemic. So obviously we were largely on Zoom. Um, my, we were hybrid, but my students largely elected to attend on Zoom, which did make this more challenging. I think it really would work best in an in-person environment, but it was still successful. I, I wanna do it again. Um, I first had my students, we started class where they um, wrote their sources 
on digital index cards and I can look up to see what the site was I had them use again I can't remember it off the top of my head it's like yeah we want to know yeah the digital index cards yeah and I've done this part in class before where I bring in index cards I like to bring in color-coded index cards and do like yellow for journals blue for books, pink for websites, something like that. So that way they can also see the balance of their sources. Like if they're only using one color or uh, That's just, right. yeah, it helps them start um, assessing kind of their range uh, off the bat. But it was like, okay, write your sources um, in MLA style. You're going to save these and be able to re uh, use them when you're writing your paper. So we're just getting the work out of the way now, take it seriously. And then they worked in small groups. So they were able to see each other's citations and start to recognize like, oh, did I do it wrong or did you do it wrong? Because we're doing it differently. So they start to catch those errors. Um, I stopped by with each group to talk to them about their questions, do another set of eyes on it of like, okay, well actually this needs to be italicized. And I talked to them about the reasons for all of this, because yeah. to them, these are just arbitrary guidelines. So I should say before they even dive into this, we go over about, well, imagine I'm writing about, you know, the movie Titanic and I keep putting it in quotation marks. Someone's going to be like, well, is there a short film Titanic? Is there a short story? Or is she talking about the movie? Um, and so it's just the easy way to maintain your credibility or lose your credibility. And we right. talked about hanging indent, how it makes it easier to locate those sources and all of that. Um, and we do a, a test run of, you know, me acting out of, I'm interested in the source. I wonder, <laughs> I want to learn more about it. And they always suggest that I be nominated for an Academy Award. Absolutely. Um, but so they're working small groups. Um, kind of nailing down what it should be, what the rules are, where they're messing up. I remind them that citation generators find to use, but double check because robots do what they're told and they're often told the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And then their groups were each one, each group was assigned a different type of source that they might be using in their papers. So one was academic journals, one was books, one group had um, newspaper articles one group had websites but also one group had youtube videos right um one group had television series stuff like that right um, and i told them they could create the guide in any format they wanted i gave them a range of examples the majority of them chose powerpoint which uh -huh. it works um I, I want to find a way in the future to not discourage them from doing PowerPoints, but to encourage them for different options because I was teaching four sections of 1102 this semester. And so I compiled all four section guides all together. So if one guy didn't work right for them, they could check out another guide. But for a lot of them, it was like four PowerPoints, four PowerPoints. Yeah. And an infograph, which again, that's not essentially a problem. Um, it just was a little bit overly consistent. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing you could have done to kind of curve PowerPoints is do a first come first serve. Mm -hmm. So like 
the genre you present in, your group has to sign up for it. And only you, if you, if infograph is gone, it's gone. If PowerPoint's gone, it's gone. Right. Um, or, you know, if you have two slots for that or for PowerPoints and the rest have to be something else. And so, yeah, that's smart. a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of a cheat, I think on my part, cause it's not me like outright banning PowerPoints, even though that's sometimes how I've like what I feel like I want to do, but you know, it is like it, PowerPoints can be really useful. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to ban them outright, but I do. Yeah. Totally get tired of them sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's their fallback. Yeah. Um, it's just like, on minor assignments like that, you want them to take risk, right? So that they can learn to use a Prezi or Canva or whatever, so that then it later, whether it's for our class or not, they're more comfortable with doing something different. Yeah, and even like pushing their boundaries of, of how they communicate in those moments can help them rethink about the topic. And for citation, like obviously, I think students and instructors alike, we often think there's not much to say about citation, yeah. but even if it just helps them have that click moment of, oh, okay, yes. Now I get the whole like volume <laughs> issue dilemma I've been struggling with or yeah. something like, I didn't know how to find that on when I was using that source. I just would see the article title and the author and I didn't realize like, this is how to find this. Overall, it worked well, and I think it's a good intro and, and use it as a reminder to your students that avoid the mistakes that I made as an undergrad of copying and pasting the material you want and then moving on and keep looking. And then later you're like, yep, that's the source that I want to use. Where did I find that? Yeah. <laughs> Where? Where is it? I save no identifying information and just kind of putting in different phrases into Google and databases and hoping it will come up again. Right. <laughs> right. It often does not. And you're doing it the night before the papers do, panicking. So I use that as a reminder, keep a list of your sources as you go along. Mm -hmm. Even if yeah. you don't think you are going to use it, just keep it. Who cares if you don't use it? <laughs> it's yeah, fair. definitely. So the way I approach citations and even when I revisit it, in a lit class with students, I really, I talk about like how an in-text citation is the key mm. and if you use that to, to unlock the larger source in the work cited, which then right in that unlocking, you're able to look up that large, that source, right? Because in my research, I'm only going to give you a part of what that original source says. So it's a key to, to what the original source says, but it is not going to it's a key, a clue. It's not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so my in-text citation, like you said, with the Titanic, if it's, if my in-text citation is not correct, then I can never find my way to unlock that actual original source and understand it. And so that's how we talk about it um, from the get-go. And so I try to talk them through, well, this is why you would use the author's last name. But if you have the author, an author with two last names that are the same, right? Let Johnson and Johnson, right? That key is not going to unlock which source it goes to. So what do you have to do? And so it's, it seems to be like a useful way for them to be able to kind of self-check, right? Can yeah. I just look at my in-text citation 
and see, find my source on my works cited. And then from my works cited page, can I go to the original source? Do I have all the information? And so I don't do a lot of like, let's rote memorize the rules of citation. I tell them like, as they do it more and more, they will be able to memorize, you know, the key kind of rules, but their guide is to say, okay, will this information in my citation get me to that, back to that source? Yeah, I like that key and lock idea because some students have that wall in their brain where they can't break it down via like lectures and group discussions and everything of the in-text citation is not enough on its own. Yes. And citation is not enough on its own. Yes. That's one of the biggest problems I have with students is that I get a lot of sources in their work cited and I get no in-text citation in the body of the paper. And I'm like, well, I have no idea what information I'm trying to unlock because I, I don't have those connect connections. And while we're talking about all of this, it occurs to me that I want to emphasize that you might think your students know all this, but you have no way to guarantee what they have been previously taught. Do they understand it? And if you're assessing them on this, you have to at least cover it a little bit because I don't think like, I'm I'm not saying that it's a raging problem, but I do think a lot of times professors, we expect our students to have certain knowledge and we assess and evaluate them on this in their projects, but we haven't actually taught them that. So how can we evaluate them on something we haven't taught? Or also I understand a lot of the, if this is a literature class and maybe not giving as much writing instruction, or I feel like I shouldn't have to give writing instruction. And for me personally, I, I don't think that that's true. Um, so I think, you know, that in every class you, you're still teaching writing, but if you're, you know, if you don't have the time to devote to, you know, a mini lesson on citations before the first paper or the first response or whatever, um, then it is a case of like, are you giving them the resources, right? Do you have a folder on your Blackboard or your Canvas that says, here are the rules for citations or here's a citation manager you can use or whatever, Um because Even if you build it into like yeah. one of their peer edits. Exactly. Absolutely. So let's move a little bit away from citations and talk about some of the other skills that we like teach through different mini assignments or workshops or. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Paige, since we're just still t- talking about resources, are there any resources you try to include in your classes across the board? Yeah, I do. I use a video tutorial of Zotero um, in every class. It's a citation manager that's free and download the add-on to your Microsoft Word. And it pulls snapshots pages from web pages and and you can really organize all your, your sources into folders. And, and a lot of times early on, like in a comp class, it's a little bit advanced because they're not doing the sort of in-depth research, but it gives them largely correct citations, much more reliable than the things they've been using, like easy bib or whatever. So no matter what I stress to them, use Zotero or one of the citation managers that, that your library um, recommends. Please don't use easy bib or whatever. So they, 
we'll use it for citations. I show students a lot how to use the add-on because the add-on puts the correct in-text citation in and they don't use that. They don't, they don't use it a lot. It's complicated or it seems complicated to them. They just want to give them that in citation um, if for the work cited and they're good. But I think that by the time you get students in a literature class where they maybe are putting together a larger paper or maybe even not a larger paper, but a paper that depends more heavily on source materials, Zotero is something that they're really into and that they will use. So that's a go-to for me on citations, like resources, resource-wise. Yeah, I, I might use that in the future. I try to find a list of like journals or databases or something that's connected to the theme of the class that I vet, but that's already been sourced because I'm not an expert on anything. <laughs> that's whatever. Um, on but anything, Margaret. On, on anything. anything. Yeah, what I meant to say was everything, but Meridian slipped there. <laughs> um, what I mean is like, there's, there's a lot of resources that have done the work for you of compiling databases, journals that cover the different approaches to a topic. Um, so even with, um, I think it was a short story class I taught, I just found a website that compiled all of the digital archives for American authors, I think it was. Ooh, that's cool. I want that website. Yeah, I'll find it. Um, and so that way they could check out because the short story class, you just cover so many different authors. You don't know what your students are going to write about. So um, that was just kind of that general overview um, and things like that. And I try to make them really aware of resources they might not expect to be useful. So I might just mention when we cover research, about how I might include, you know, um, an article from a medical journal to support yeah. it, or I might find an article from an econ journal to talk about the handling of, you know, class or et cetera. Um, because sometimes they get so focused on this is a literature class. I need literature resources. Mm -hmm. I need to find materials about the book, about the author. And if it doesn't talk about my specific topic, I cannot use it. So we also talk about how to get creative with our sources and that oftentimes we'll have our source that talks directly about a topic, but then we'll have a source that talks about our interests right. and what connects that is our analysis. So like I, I was just talking with my students about how you can think about your paper as a Venn diagram where you have your specific subject but then you also have the other classes you're taking. You have your career goals, you have your personal interests, you have maybe some topics associated with your specific subject. Yeah. And your paper is the intersection of all of that. And so you can pull things from the other circles as long as you're connecting it with your analysis. Um, and I love that image, Margaret. Uh, maybe we can make an image to show our students. Yeah. Um, in diagram, we should. Yeah, Paige can see, but no one listening can see. Um, this is the way I do with my students. If I use my hands as to represent circles, and it's just me making a hand brief to Paige. Um, but yes, I think an actual image. I'm going to go ahead and we can make that and share that. Yeah. Um, something else that I've done, and when you were talking about the different library orientations, it was giving me ideas. 
to help my students get more creative with their research to really push their ideas, I required, I call it these something sources of something old, something new, something barred, something blue. And the something old is, we talk about as a foundational text of critic, scholar, expert, professional who's considered a leader in that field, something canonical. Something new would just be something published in the last decade. Something borrowed was an academic a book, so a book published by an academic press, and something blue was a source that would disagree with them, present an alternative perspective. And okay. I think in the future, I might do the two library orientation approaches. I, did, I never thought of having a second one, which is silly in hindsight, but having the first overview and then the second one, um, not having it as an orientation, but having that like we're going to go to the library as a class. You're going to use this classroom to research, but your goal is to find at least one of these sources. And you're going to report back at the end of class of which one of these something sources you have found, why you're excited about it, and just do a quick breakdown of it our next class time. Yeah. But how, how else do you incorporate research into the class? Or do you have to step use outside of class time to break it down ever? Uh, well, I guess I was going to talk about, um, so this pivots a little, but this is a, I was going to talk about the assignments that uh, I think kind of hone research skills uh, that I lean heavily on. And so any major papers, I'll usually have them do some sort of proposal or pitch for that idea. It's not always as formal as the kind of proposal step of drafting a research paper in a comp class, but it is usually some kind of what's your research question? Do you already know what will you need to learn? And I kind of stress, you know, that your proposal or your pitch is it's a it's a fledgling idea. You are not at the point where you already know your answer, right? Because good research is being willing to say like this is the question, this is how maybe I think I'm going to answer it but I'm willing to see what, what's out there, right, to develop my answer. So um, it, it's rare that I have a class that doesn't do that. I would th I think it's safe to say that I have never had a class where they didn't do some sort of proposal or pitch. And then I always do an annotated bibliography. Um, I pose my annotated bibliography as a organizational tool for them. And so what I'll have students do in a lit class is to organize those sources based on how they would put them into the paper. And so what they'll do is they'll, it's not alphabetized or anything like that. And it's, here's the trajectory of my paper. And so they put their sources together. And then part of that annotated bibliography is at the end writing some sort of like reflection or overview. It's, it's more like an overview of here's my plan for these sources, right? So I've, I've done that in chunks in these paragraphs. Now I've had a chance to look at everything I have and I'm gonna plan out, right? So sort of a paragraph form outline of here's what I'm going to include in this paper, right? My first part of the paper will be about this, depend heavily on these sources and this analysis, second part, so on and so forth. Then what I'll do and what, what I've done before is that we switch during a peer workshop, those annotated bibliographies with that trajectory. 
And so they, the partner doesn't look at the trajectory first um, or the overview first. They look at that annotated bibliography and then they write locate just from this information that you have and they put their thesis statement at the top, right? So again, this is not like the sort of formal annotated bibliography. It's not formatted the same way, stuff like that. Um, it's got that thesis at the top. Um, and at, at points I've ha I've taken an at, taken this added this part to the assignment and taken it out where they put their intro paragraph at the top. Then their partner reads through each of those sources and the annotation and tries to then write up their, what do you see as the trajectory of this paper? Where do you see in like the holes, right? The, the missing pieces. Um, and some of those missing pieces are that they just don't have a whole paper here, right? And, and you can't see all of it, but some of it is that they're missing some key research to make the connections. So then they switch back. And then the next kind of um, stage of that, so this is a little bit, like we do a lot of this in class, like during our workshop, but um, the next stage is that you're taking a look at those sources and you're thinking about transitions. And so I use the annotated bibliography, both as like a research skill um, or honing a research skill, but also how can we use that annotated bibliography to kind of flesh out and do a loose outline of our paper. And so then when they put their, they'll write their transitions off to the side, right? Like this source connects with this source in this way. And then they begin to realize like, oh, I need to move this one. Um, Cause it's actually not gonna lead into this one really well or something like that. That sounds like such a good assignment. And I was just thinking about how I think in my next literature class, I'm gonna remove a novel. So that way I can really do a whole unit on research to, to take them from start to finish because I think that annotated bibliography would be really useful. And I think it's really important to have this, these sorts of scaffolding with your, your research for in your lit classes because so often I, I found if you don't build it into your course, your students don't know how to bridge their analysis with their research. And so you just have these quotes, paraphrases, whatever, sprinkled in randomly to into paragraphs that kind of connect, but they haven't bridged that gap fully. And if you build it in, then your students can really start seeing research as a scholarly conversation that they're contributing to. So how are you going to add to this conversation? How are you going to show that this outside information someone else wrote supports your ideas um, and, and really think about that connection between research and analysis? Because otherwise it's just oh, well, this paper requires that I have four outside sources, so I just need to squeeze them in here. Exactly. exactly. And so I will say that in a comp class, I focus more on the technical part, right? So here are all the ways that you can integrate quotes. And we spend a lot of time practicing and looking at different examples and stuff like that. I don't do that in a literature class. And the annotated bibliography is my way of reminding them like, hey, you have to be deliberate about how you integrate your, your sources, about having a conversation that they're not just sort of, um, you know, like a bomb that you're applying to your paper. They're important. Mm -hmm. And it's also kind of a cheat for me because I'll, I'll spend, you know, a whole class period on that annotated bibliography. They'll workshop it. Sometimes that workshop runs into another class period. 
Um, but then I won't have a sort of formal first draft due after that, right? So I'll say, if you want to bring me a first draft during office hours or something like that, then we can. But the annotated bibliography lets me kind of do some, like an abbreviated version of some of the work with, um, you know, source materials, outlines, being really organized with your thoughts through transitions and, and paragraph structure. I do some of that in a brief, like in a, an abbreviation of foundation. So research isn't the afterthought that's just being sprinkled in. It's actually informing everything else that they're writing, which is the goal. Um, but I know that as a student, I saved the research for last because it was like, well, let me figure out what I'm writing about because that's the most important part. And then I'll find the sources that support what I'm saying. Yeah. And so I really stress like in every class that your job, like that proposal is I'm brainstorming what my ideas are, what I'm interested in, but it's not, this is the answer to the question. And then the annotated bibliography should come first, right? Prior to any drafts, because you are still figuring out based on what the research is, how you want to contribute to the conversation. The other thing that I wanted to share that I think is important is at a certain point, you have read so much that you know what is the important uh, scholars are, what the important conversations are, and all that, but our students are just starting out. I Some people might consider this hand-holding, but I also in addition to reminding our students that they're allowed to use any of the critical texts that we had as our readings throughout the semester, I will also provide lists of articles and chapters that I think they might find useful. Um, I will tell them to check out Judith Butler, but to look at a spark notes for you, or I'm like, great ideas. Very hard to parse through sometimes, <laughs> but, um, and tell them the, the people kind of to start with because if you kind of have to see the same names pop up again and again and see the, and see those citations. And I explain that, that that's how research works is you start to see the same names over and over again. So you get familiar with the speakers, but that takes years and your students have a few weeks. I just think that part of the skills we're teaching is not just how to find that research, but how to read it understand it and connect it to what they're learning. And so I, I like to have that balance of teach them how to find it, but also give them some of the sources that will be important for them to know so they can start that work of breaking it down. Well, and I think the point you're making here is that they don't know what they don't know, right? Yeah. And so you're kind of illuminating some of that locked away behind the door um, knowledge. And so when I, the one of the reasons why I always do proposal or pitch, even if I don't have time or because I to do drafts or the annotated bibliography full sort of experience, I always do the proposal and pitches because that's when I give them feedback about what sources they can use, right? Yeah. Where they can kind of start. Yeah. So I think like the proposal is a great chance for that peer edits earlier before they even get started during conference, like wherever you can fit it in, but just keeping in mind, Angel, like that you said, the, they don't know what they don't know. And that it includes this sort of research and secondary sources. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you want to wrap? Yeah. I think we've covered a lot. Yeah. Um, I still feel like we, 
there's so much more to cover. So I'm hoping that we do future return to this topic once we the pandemic's over and we're back to using library databases, archives, physical. Oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about archives. I know, but. Oh yeah, okay. We can't even open that box. I know. We'll save it for a future episode. I like, again, I can't wait to hear what other people do for teaching research. So um, y'all please share your experiences, your questions on Twitter, on Instagram and emails, um, because I definitely want to return to this topic again in the near or not so near future. So Absolutely. And we'll, we'll start saving them to share with, share with the, the community. Okay, so Margaret, tell us your dream course. Oh, okay. So I'm going to half return the question back to you. Okay. Are we going to talk about the dream courses uh, that are yin and yang to each other? We were talking about before this, or are we saving that to keep mulling over? No, let's do it. Let's yin and yang it. Like I'm ready. (laughs) Okay, so Paige and I, we're talking about Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation because I finally read it. Um, Paige, when did you read you? I know you read it a long, a while ago, but. Uh, maybe oh, 2017, probably. So for those of you who have not read it, it is a eco-horror, supernatural mystery. Here, Margaret's going to tell, it's, it's so weird, so fun, so scary. Very unsettling. Um, so unsettling, that's the word. It like fully encapsulates uh Freud's uncanny you know that like it's familiar but something slightly off and that's what's unsettling yes all of those things we had the the chance to like hear Jeff Vandermeer speak maybe 2018 right Margaret yeah it would have been 2018 yeah and all of his sort of body his body of work is really kind of focused on that weird unsettling um feeling of this an ecological world in turmoil or in a state of change or just that's just weird right and so think like you see those like viral tweets about like you know weird deep sea creatures that just freak like freak you out when you think about it um at least me me i'm just talking about myself here but that's the gist i think yeah. And so with that, like kind of this strange unsettling worlds that are also very familiar, I was thinking about teaching a, a class. I don't know if it would be considered post-colonial or neo-colonialism, but looking at kind of the act of colonization through different lenses. So not looking at texts that are traditionally thought to be responding to colonialism, but looking at how, um, the act of colonization kind of pervades our media and and the different ways it's presented, perpetuated, or challenged and um, using texts like Annihilation as as this look of like, what does it feel like to be colonized maybe? Or or how does this maybe look at a different aspect of colonization? I really liked um, the passage where they're describing like the intruder is both assimilating and forcing assimilation like there's the twofold act um so much so that you lose your body yeah yeah Yeah. but it's not just like that idea we normally have of like something else coming in and subsuming the rest there's like a 
back and forth. The one one entity is controlling what that back and forth is. Um, And so I think just looking at sort of unexpected kind of 21st century weird genres to unpack this Mm -hmm. and like the ethics and, and experiences of it. But what about you, Paige? Yeah, so this conversation made me think about superorganisms um, and maybe in the very like scientific version of it, a superorganism, but also in a way that's tied to Margaret's idea of colonialization, right? So um, the group of people that's superseding another group of people forcibly or um, covertly or um, gradually over time. And so I was thinking, you know, obviously also because we're yin, yin and yang here, annihilation, but Lindsay Ellis's Axiom's End, um, Dune, which, and then so like getting into Dune and even something like Moby Dick um, would be more about like that very fearful kind of large organism that doesn't follow the rules of society and disrupts things and you have to figure out how to live with it or kill it or whatever it is right um and so I think I would start with like that really kind of concrete like here's this idea of a super organism um that's invading your space or you're invading its space and you have to mitigate how to deal with that and then move to a more abstract right so how do we think about super organisms and colonialization and assimilation and takeover and resources and so then we get a really interesting class about like the idea of human versus nature and who gets classified in that nature category right and so then it's you know the west versus nature or um because I'm thinking specifically there is how we've used people as resources right um and nature as a resource and so how super organisms use up resources or something like that also, as you were talking about it, also made me realize another textbook that our classes could use. You'll hate me, but Richard Powers' Overstory. I don't I'll, hate you. I'll let you mull that over. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm mulling and I'll continue to mull it. I'm not using it. <laughs> I would only use that book in that in the one novel class. I'm going to stand by that. That's fair. But until next time. Yes. <laughs>